Don't forget to check out another podcast of ours called Escaping 1980, where we explore the causes, impacts, and lasting effects of one of the most infamous events in American agricultural history, the 1980s farm crisis. You'll find Escaping 1980 wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome. Thank you all for joining us. Going to jump in and touch base on the latest WASD estimates and then a few articles that we've put out there today. So thanks for joining us. Brent's here with me today. And we're going to start with talking about the WASD report. In this interesting inflection point, I guess, in the WASD, we get the June report, but the real fireworks come at the end of the month with the stocks report coming out at the end of the month, but also the acreage report. And so this June WASD kind of a lame duck right before there's these big reports that really kind of have some big impacts. But this one had some interesting observations we wanted to point out. So Brent, we're going to start with corn. I think the big takeaway is they changed exports. They increased exports for the old crop, that crop we harvested last year. And that in turn lowered ending stocks for the old crop and reduced the beginning stocks for the new crop, which put us in a little tighter situation. Ending stocks for corn Crop growing right now is now at 9.2%, about one percentage point lower than we thought a month ago. Just tighten the situation up a little bit. And uh, it seems like that follows a trend. Now, all the adjustments we've had in the last maybe three months seem to have tightened things up. That's why there's going to be so much interest in this June acreage report and the June stocks report to see where that goes. Because that's one area where you could start to see the balance sheet expand a little bit, I think, relative to what we've been seeing lately, which is tightening. This stocks report is going to be very important. It's going to really give us a good idea of what's been going on. There's different streams of data. So the USDA can look at how much corn has been exported. And that was a factor for these adjustments, but this stocks report will give us a good idea what's going on with say feed or other uses of the crop as well. We made some adjustments here, but I think the thing to keep in mind on these quarterly stocks reports are the big kind of the ground truthing events. And so this will be a big opportunity for us to really make some adjustments here based on that recent data. Of course, we have the acreage questions in the forecast network. So you can go update your expectations about acreage, but combination of did producers plant what they said they were going to plant back in March? How did prevent plant maybe come in to be an effect or not an impact? And then, of course, any surveying errors that might have been included. So those will all be part of this acreage report coming up. It's going to be really interesting. I think good chance for you to go into that forecast network, use that tool, take a look at the consensus, see what your peers are doing. I just looked at it, made me rethink mine a little bit, just my experience with it has been when I've gotten really far away from the consensus, sometimes that's a good signal that I might be off and I'm probably further away from the consensus on this than I've been for a while. I have to think about it a little bit. Use that tool. It's, I think it's worthwhile. So soybeans had a bit of a different story. This narrative is a little bit small adjustments again. And what they actually did was they increase the beginning stocks for the new crop. So less tight situation as we close out the old crop. So more beginning stocks as we get started with the new marketing year. 
And that put a little bit of upward movement in the stocks to use ratio. So 3.5% stocks to use for the new crop up from 2.9% for the old crop. So still in a tight scenario, but again, we're adjusting here a little bit on the edges and this one for soybeans grew just a little bit. Well, this is one of those, David, where you can almost take those headlines and talk about a huge percentage increase in the ending stocks, but it's just really on a small, small number. And this market continues to remain really, really tight. I mean, we're scraping bottom of the barrel, still are. As we said, though, you know, that acreage number is going to come in. Might expect that acreage number to be a little higher than is shown right there at 87.6 million. We got to be thinking that prevent plant was pretty low this year, I think. So maybe we can scrape in a few more acres and increase that any stocks. But at the end of the day, it's going to be hard to get it too large. So it remains a pretty tight situation, which I think is the big picture of all of this. Both markets continue to remain fairly tight. Yeah, Brent, just to expand on that point you just made, that March acreage estimate that perspective planting included an assumption of normal prevented planting. And so we always have to think about how is prevented planting going to play out this year relative to normal. If we come in below normal, then you can actually see these acreage estimates come up just because there's less prevent plant than a quote unquote normal year. And so that's what we're watching. That's what we're thinking about. Of course, we talked about this a couple of years ago, which to the other direction, but it's very common to see prevent plant come in below normal. And so we have to see how far below normal that could be. So again, end of the month, June 30th is that acreage report. And that's going to be our first real size up of what the ag factory is going to look like here, the production factory in the United States is going to look like. That'll be that first acreage report estimate. And we'll start getting yield estimates out of the USDA later in the summer. But this is the first one that sizes us up for where we are heading into the growing season. So Brent, I want to pull up now, switch gears a little bit. I had a great question, a presentation I did. I guess it was in the beginning of May. Someone walked up and said, hey, I think production expenses are going to go up a lot for my 22 crop. How much should I be thinking about? What magnitude should I be considering? And so uh, we looked at some of the data this week, and I guess I was a little surprised by this. A little more movements here than what I thought. We used the Purdue crop budget data, and we broke this out by variable expenses and fixed expenses or overhead to give you an idea of what movements. And so looking back, corn and soybean budgets, they can move the variable expenses. They can move by more than 10%. It's happened quite a bit in the last 10 or so years. And so 10% movements aren't that uncommon. And 2008 stands out because the variable expenses for corn and soybeans were both up more than 30% in that single year. I've forgotten about that. That is a huge increase. Probably coming off a much smaller base, I would say, in those days. That's one thing we have to kind of keep in mind is what's the base. But I found this day to be really interesting. I mean, out of those years, you show, what, five or six of them where we're seeing double-digit percentage increases. So seems to me that's in the realm of what you're looking at next year, right? <laughs> right. And it's also interesting to look back into your idea of the small base, the cost of raising uh, corn in Indiana, the variable expenses have gone from $145 an acre to 424 since 1991. So it seems like it's a big change, but it's about a 3.5% annualized rate of turn. So even if we're not thinking about 
strong prices. Every year we should think, okay, are my expenses going to be more or less than 3.5% higher? Soybeans have increased about 3% annually from about 100 to $240 an acre. We're always seeing these production expenses creep higher. The other one we looked at were overhead costs. Again, 2008 stands out. Overhead costs up again, you know, 18% that year. But again, you can see a couple years, two years in the data were more than a 10% change. I think what's interesting to keep in mind for the overhead is once we started to see them come in, there were several years of, of increasing or very small changes in the fixed overhead. And they were also very slow to come out. So the variable expenses, we might see a 10 or 20% decrease in variable expenses. We just didn't see that magnitude with the overhead. Yeah, overheads are going to be much more, I mean, once they adjust upward, that doesn't come down very often. I think you're right. A lot of times when they start to adjust upward, it's got a tail on it, but it's partly because of this cyclicality in ag. Fixed costs are going up because profits are up, because the biggest driver of those fixed costs are are land values. I think it's very safe to say that these are going up (laughs) In 2022, probably quite a bit. I think you'll see land values significantly higher as well as rents and equipment expenditures are going up. I just think these costs tend to really follow the profitability of of ag and not necessarily lead it. They follow it, in my opinion. In these budgets, the overhead increased $50 per acre in 2008, which is a big, you know, that's the equipment, the labor expense, the land expense that Brent mentioned. So when you take the overhead of $50 an acre and the variable expenses, corn production costs for that one year were up $191 per acre. So a big change in the budgets, about $112 an acre for soybeans. So again, we're not forecasting here what's going to happen in 2022, but we're trying to provide some magnitude, maybe prepare you for what might be otherwise a sticker shock as you start to prepare those budgets. And of course, we didn't talk about these are expenses, right? You can get yourself into a whole lot more trouble if you cash flow obligations, right? So if you add a lot of debt and you need to start servicing a lot of debt starting in 2022, this is another way that you can really add to your own farms, you know, quote unquote cost structure is if you uh, have a lot more debt to service. Yeah, it's something to pay attention to because the, these costs are almost certainly going up and it was interesting to see the magnitude of those variable cost changes. We always enjoy good reader questions, so always feel free to send those our way. They always make for great topics. And Brent, another reader question, I'll, I'll kick this over to you, was about cryptocurrencies and the Bitcoin. You wrote a, or you led reading a, writing a really great, uh, what we're thinking about memo on that. Do you want to share a couple highlights from that? Dave and I have been thinking about this for quite a while. And one of the things that, you know, we decided early on is that it was one of these deals where initially we couldn't really figure out wasn't easy to figure out how to even transact it, which made us think, well, I don't know how useful this is going to be. And then we were having a hard time seeing how it had kind of legitimate uses. But that in and of itself makes it somewhat valuable, I guess. Ultimately, the thing that I found the best way to describe it is a memo that was written by Howard Marks in which he talked about gold. As I I was reading that memo, I, I read that a long time ago. I remembered it and I sat down and read that again. And I said, you know, honestly, if you just replace all the times he uses the word gold with Bitcoin, kind of sums up how we think about it. And ultimately it comes down to this idea. It's a speculative investment. It's not an investment in the sense that it produces cash flow. 
you're really buying it based on it's going to be worth what you know what you think other people think it's going to be worth or what other people think you think it's going to be worth so it's very very speculative whereas something like farmland i mean it, it produces real cash flows and we can value those and think about them. I mean, we always have to guess it to, you know, what the future ones are going to be, but, but it's always throwing out some kind of income and uh, it has real value. It's a real asset. And uh, Bitcoin is one of these that's not that way. It's, it's, it's really only going to be worth what people think it's worth. That, that makes it super highly speculative, not saying don't do it, just saying it's highly, highly speculative and uh, you have to be comfortable with that to do it. Of course, Bitcoin was the uh, popular cryptocurrency from a few years ago and it's still popular, but now there are dozens of these cryptocurrencies out there and each one of them has their unique set of appeal or setbacks, but it's, it's interesting to see this space sort of take off and a lot of uncertainty moving ahead. See, that's the other interesting thing is to why. Why are we even talking about Bitcoin? Why is it was it developed? What conditions became right so that things like Bitcoin or Ether or whatever cryptocurrency you might be talking about came about? And I think it's a couple of things. Like one is the computing made it possible, but there's also this worry about transparency maybe than there has, which is interesting because transparency or lack of transparency i don't know how you even frame that up in bitcoin what what its advantage is but there's no bank in the middle of it so there's like this fear of the the financial system and then there's this fear that the financial system's completely run amok because the federal reserve is going to take us into hyperinflation or something you know you can debate yourselves how legitimate you think any of those are i don't, obviously don't worry about that too much but those are the conditions, I think, that are giving rise to these things. This is kind of this worry about inflation, but it's it's more than that. It's worry about the whole institution of fiat money. I like how you frame that up. Sometimes we can learn more about the environment that we're in than the actual product itself, right? And so there's a lot of, I guess, these concerns that are out there. And this crypto rise is sort of a more of a reflection of the environment that we're in, maybe more than the actual product itself. The other reflection of the environment we're in is kind of the speculative mania, right? I, everybody is wanting to speculate on everything. I feel like everywhere you look, everything is, everybody's caught up into these speculative manias, whether it's housing or, or whatever it might be. So this is one of the things we mentioned in the memo, right? One of the first reasons why Bitcoin was going to be so great, it was it was going to be stable. People in Venezuela <laughs> wouldn't have to worry about inflation or some third world country inflation, which is where your dollar has less purchasing power. But these Bitcoins aren't being used in transactions very often because of the opposite. They keep becoming worth more. And so you could imagine a scenario like, well, you know, do you want to buy a Tesla car with one Bitcoin today when you could be buying two for one Bitcoin tomorrow? And so it's sort of, it, it's, there's all these arguments about why Bitcoin is going to be really great. And then you can sort of work your way through those, but there's always sort of a loophole. And I even saw uh, this week where the government went and uh, took back a bunch of the cryptocurrencies from those hackers from the pipeline a few weeks ago. So <laughs> I guess it's not even good for illegal trade anymore. We figured out ways to uh, steal them and claw them back and everything else. So very interesting development on that front. It would be really interesting to know what the real story on that whole deal is and how the heck did they find that? And I thought you had to have like the code to the, 
wallet to be able to undo. There'll be some interesting articles written about that, I'm sure. And there were some pretty big failures of Bitcoin wallets a few years ago. And you you mentioned those in the memo, but it was supposed to be this safe currency. And then there's some pretty large scale uh, challenges with that as well. That and the amount of it that's been lost and other things. So anyway. (laughs) Well, one last story I'll wrap up with. I was reading a book and the author's saying he was giving this big presentation to share that Danny Kahneman, someone we talk a lot about, sort of a psychologist on decision-making, how one of his initial thoughts might've been wrong. So he goes up to give this presentation and there was Danny Kahneman in the front row. And he's like, oh, great. The guy who won the Nobel Prize in economics for decision-making is here. So he gave his presentation and afterwards, Danny Kahneman walked up. He goes, great, I was wrong. Kind of the shuffle of the conference didn't let him elaborate, but he found him later and goes, what did you mean? He goes, oh, great presentation. I learned I was wrong. That's great. It's like, why are you so excited? Don't you want to like debate this a little bit? He goes, no, being wrong and being proven that I was wrong is the only way to know that you actually learned something. And I thought that was a really interesting way to challenge our thinking a little bit is, okay, how do you respond whenever you learn that something you believed was wrong? For me, it hit home because my son likes to inform me that Pluto is no longer a planet. And I kind of get upset about that, right? Like it really, something I thought was truth and now it's not truth. And I've learned that it's not a planet. I've been proven wrong, but why am I so upset about Pluto? And sometimes we hold what we thought was truth a little too tight and it bothers us. And I have... Being Pluto not being a planet doesn't involve me. It doesn't impact me on a daily basis at all, but it's something that I'm not willing to let go of. And so we have to sort of approach this idea of, can I learn something? When someone tries to prove me wrong, can I learn something? And how do I move on from that? So just a really great counterintuitive way to think about how we can approach that. Brent proves me that I'm wrong all the time. So that's why... (laughs) That's why we're great friends here. (laughs) All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Stay curious. We'll catch you all next week. Thanks. Thanks.